There's no place to escape to. This is the last podcast. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. Listen, guys, listen. Let's say they make a new USS Indianapolis film. Oh. You know who I want in that movie? Who? Number one, Zoe Dooch. Who's Zoe Dooch? <laughs> She's some no- kind of skinny. I have no who idea who Zoe Dooch is. Zoe Dooch should be one of those nurses. I don't know why they always have those in World War II movies where it's always a nurse. Well, a lot of people are sick and dying. Zoe Dooch goes into the water, and I want one of the sharks to be played by number two. Guess what? Who? Josh. Gad. Wow, you are brave. <laughs> and this is me taking myself out of the running. That's yeah. incredible. That's yeah. me giving a part. That's me giving back to Hollywood. Wow, like, your heart has grown two sizes today. Showing love to Josh Gad. Josh Gad playing the single, the shark. Let's say there's like Zoe Dooch is in the uh-huh. water. And she was uh-huh. one soldier that she was sweet on, right? But he uh-huh. was kind of an asshole, like on the boat when they were out there, right? right? And he, he said yeah. to like, I don't need you, Zoe Dooch, because he oh. doesn't change your name oh. for films because she can't recognize other names. Oh, ding. Oh, I'm so sorry, Henry. This is my <laughs> elevator stop. No, I'll sir, see you no. later. No, no, this I is go work at <laughs> Okay, bye. I'm gonna go back to my office as a Viacom. And the chat gets eaten by Josh Gad. Security escorted him out. Welcome to last podcast on the left, everyone. I am Ben hanging out with Henry and Marcus. Today's episode, I'm scared of being underwater. I'm scared of close spaces. I'm scared of sharks. And I'm scared of kamikaze pilots. So I'm gonna be scared this whole episode. (laughs) To steal a line from Marcus Parks, you'll never go to the beach again. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's your impression You'll of Marcus. You'll never go in the water and again. Marcus, can you say that? Yeah, yeah. You'll never go into the water again. Yeah. Wow, it's yeah. actually pretty good. I thought you were kind of being mean, but that's how he sounds. My name's very Dutch, and I'm very mad that I can't read. Okay. All right, everyone. Today's topic, so cool to be covering this. Nicolas Cage was a star in a film about the very topic we're going to discuss today. I watched it last night. It is so awesome. Yes. USS Indianapolis. That is what we're discussing today, the USS Indianapolis. So the sinking of the USS Indianapolis was the worst sea disaster to ever occur in the history of the United States Navy. Ever since they stopped singing that song. Mm -hmm. Which one? The village people. In the Navy. In the Navy. (laughs) Over the course of four harrowing days following a Japanese torpedo attack on July 30th, 1945, and the waning days of World War II, 890 men went into the shark-infested waters of the Pacific Ocean, but only 316 came out alive. Okay, can we get it out right now before we continue? You get three. Three references. I think three's a lot. You think three's three's a lot? lot. Okay, so you get two. I'm just going to do this one because I think, honestly, I was going to give it to you, Marcus. I think you should say it properly at the very top so that we we all know what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You know what? I've, I've already got. I've already. You know what? I've already got a moment set out for me personally where wow. I'm going to do it. I'm not oh. going to tell you when it is, but I've got a moment. I'm I taking. I have no idea what moment. you guys are talking about. I guess I'll just do. I'll <laughs> take this give, one, sir. You don't give me a moment. I take my moment. I'm okay. glad. <laughs> I'm glad. Wow. All right. Do you want to do it? Yeah. Of course. Okay. Do it. Um, Eight hundred ninety men went in the shark and visited waters. Only three hundred sixteen. It came out of the brink. <laughs> 
That's what you wanted to do? Yeah. <laughs> All right, there we go. Let's move on. <laughs> and while the USS Indianapolis is often put forth as a shining, impeccable example of courage in the face of impossible odds, Ooh. the real story, like many events involving America in World War II, is far darker than what the whitewashed histories would lead us to believe. Imagine if the Donner Party oh. took all of the events of the Donner Party, took place over three and a half days on rafts made out of lifesavers. That sounds like an absolute <laughs> nightmare. Also, when you say lifesavers, I do think of the treat. Mm, yeah. the sweet candy. All right, cool. But that's not to say that there were no men who behaved courageously over those four days in the water. Some did, and the efforts of those men saved the lives of others. But the men who lost their minds in the waters of the Pacific over those four days and gave in to their baser instincts, they helped to create a scenario that's actually far more horrific than what Captain Quint's speech in Jaws implies. Now, you know, I'm fine if you lose your mind. Sure. But four days? <laughs> You're going to lose your mind over a long weekend? Oh, buddy. You, it, it takes two weeks before I'll allow you to kind of lose your mind. If you look at me like I'm a ham hawk after 24 hours, I would have been like, 48 hours ago, you must have been thinking the same thing. These guys knew <laughs> that no one was coming for them. That uh, there was not, a, they were on a covert mission. No one, nobody knew where the hell they were. They assumed that once they went into the water, no one was going to get them out. So after three days, you're sitting there wondering, how long can I float? How long can I keep this boner going? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the story, our main source today is Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history by Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek. Cool. While it is quite long, like most World War II books are, it's still well-written and gives complete context to the disaster itself. There's also the U.S. Indianapolis uh, documentary that is mm -hmm. pretty great, that is like a PBS one that's a big one. And then I watch it's a bunch of- It's narrated by Kyle Chandler. It, it, everybody's favorite. Isn't that nice? <laughs> the and only white man in America everyone can still agree on. Day of the Kamikaze, he's also fucking dope. Uh, and there was, there's a lot of footage on this and then, you know, just straight up fucking that movie, the U.S. Indianapolis movie, the USS Indianapolis, it has a lot of, uh, it has a lot of like factorial, like there, there is like facts in it. <laughs> what part? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's hard, man. Cause they always set it up. They always do the thing at the very beginning where you have to like, you know, like, uh, Johnny's trying to see his best girl, but Billy, he's been talking to his girl on the side, like all this kind right. of bullshit. And then they're all fucking eaten by sharks. It's called setting up the story. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and the four harrowing days that followed. Built in 1930, the USS Indianapolis was the flagship of the 5th Fleet in the Pacific Theater of World War II, focused solely on the war with Japan as opposed to the European Axis powers. The Indy was the length of two football fields. It had three 250-ton turrets with three 8-inch guns on each one, and Ooh. it was a veteran of 10 naval battles, including the Battle of Tarawa, the Battle of Tinian, the Battle of the Philippine Sea, the landing at Iwo Jima, and the beginnings of the invasion of Okinawa. Should have yeah. got a smaller boat. I guess so. That's a <laughs> massive boat. But kind of funny if you think about throwing the football around, having a good time, slapping butts with the boys. But if you replace Civ <laughs> 6, you know how important naval warfare, it is still second to air warfare because of the coverage you can get. But naval warfare, naval warfare is incredibly important because Absolutely. You can, they can shoot 
their weapons 17 miles away from shore. So you park them out and then they just bomb, 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 bomb from the outside. And then people like my dad roll torpedoes around the basement of it and laugh and fun and just drink <laughs> beers all day. Yeah, just get absolutely hammered. Absolutely. The Navy is so powerful. You don't see it out of sight, out of mind, but it's all around. And they got a bunch of missiles aimed at our enemies and friends. <laughs> Yeah, we do it to both, don't we? We do it to both. (laughs) Now, the Indy escaped serious damage in its first nine major battles. But during the advance offensive in the lead up to the Okinawan invasion, the USS Indianapolis received a dire wound from a Japanese kamikaze pilot. Oh, no. Now, America was at this point in the last year of our war with Japan, meaning that many of the best Japanese fighter pilots were long dead and replaced with teenagers with limited skills. And some of those teenagers were the kamikaze pilots of lore. They went their rounds to all of the pilot schools and they got the top cadets, they said. Did they They get the top cadets or the worst cadets? Well, eventually the top cadets are taken and eventually it's just cadets and then it's middle cadets and then it's lower cadets. But mostly at the very beginning of the push for kamikaze pilots, it was because they had run out of all of these experienced guys. They were all dead. They were just going for whoever was the hotshot and whoever they could basically persuade to believe that they were doing this for the love of the empire. I missed this Mm -hmm. scene of Top Gun. I mean, because Gun, all he did was just try not to kiss each other. I know, they were horned up. <laughs> now, the myth of the kamikaze pilot is that they effectively used their planes as missiles. And while that's partly true, it doesn't tell the whole story. Because just flying a small fighter plane into a battleship, it doesn't really damage it in any meaningful way. My research this time really showed me that that was an interesting part of it, is that you mm-hmm. can fly a normal plane into a battleship and you can fix it. You can fix the battleship and you can actually continue mm. fighting that day. So yeah. they had to develop new technology to make just flying planes into shit that much more dangerous. A little flex yeah. seal will fix a lot of stuff. We learned this when the New York Yankees pitcher, I believe, drew uh, flew his plane into a building. Mm-hmm. Only uh, two people died. Little damage. <laughs> little damage. <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah, If he was trying to do it, he probably would have caused more damage. Yes, maybe. I don't think the building matters. I don't think intent really matters when two colossal things combine with each other. I don't know. Yeah, What's it like when like you and I do side that, stores? Well, well like if you think of like a 9-11, if like the terrorists were like, what if we don't really do it that hard? But like if you drive a plane into a building, like I don't think emotion matters. Yeah. It's just going to huh. happen. Science. Okay. Yeah. That's science. You, you're saying they let God take the wheel? Oh. Well, many of the kamikaze pilots were flying straight into heavy gunfire so they could survive just long enough to drop a payload on their target. Okay. And that's exactly what happened to the USS Indianapolis. Oh. Well, there was two types. Right, because you did eventually have what they called the, I believe that it was like called the flowering chrysanthemum, that they called an <laughs> oka, which is they would have a bomber plane with a smaller plane that was lined with explosives that a little guy would sit inside. Like you have one pilot inside of it, oh, and his man. job was the, the, the bomber plane would get close and then drop the super heavy bomb built plane to crash directly into shit. Some oh. of the planes were, giant, were designed to get close and just squirt missiles at them right and just try to get as close as possible but a lot of times they were starting to build things that were specifically made to crash into shit they Mm. also would fly in at the angle of the sun so like you'd be trying to look for them and you can't see anything because you're looking directly into the sun all of a sudden they drop out of the the line of the sunlight you could see them and sometimes you only had like 30 seconds before they collided with you and they go they're like ah i'm thinking of you bestie (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm thinking of you, Bessie, indeed. Absolutely horrifying. Being tall is very difficult. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people... They, is that they, what this is they, about? They, they mock the tall man. <laughs> but in this case, very nice not to be uh, able to fit in a submarine or one of these airplanes. Mm-hmm. The tall people did survive the kamikaze yeah. attack. They also That's screamed, true. Hisatsu! As they landed, which meant sink without fail. Yeah. Sink Search with- and kill! Oh, <laughs> cool. Search and kill. Well, while the USS Indianapolis was shelling the island of Okinawa, a Japanese pilot managed to maneuver through a maelstrom of artillery and gunfire to drop a bomb right on the deck of the ship before he himself crashed into the sea and died. Oh, my God. He took a military dump right on that ship. <laughs> That's what they do. <laughs> The 500-pound bomb crashed through deck after deck before it finally exploded deep inside the ship, sending a geyser of seawater and fuel oil spouting 100 feet into the air. The ship, however, held strong and didn't sink, although nine men were killed. Now, contrary to popular belief, there were many men in the Japanese military who were against kamikaze tactics, both because of the obvious moral implications... Yeah and because of the loss of resources and money that came from sacrificing plane after plane after plane. It took, like, one crazy guy to pitch it. He, yeah. like, there was one of the the field of generals who pitched doing this, like, this movement, yeah. this idea of what was called the special attack unit, that we would go, we would, because at this point, what's hard about the propaganda machine that they were also within was how deep did the officers themselves also believe the propaganda machine. So one side was a bunch of people saying, we'll win it no matter the cost. We'll do it because we're the, we're the empire of the sun. We'll rise again and again and again. But then there are other people who are looking at the data and saying like, we're losing hard. Yeah. It does not seem like an effective way to, uh, to fight a war. Well, the people that were for kamikaze pilots, they believed that if just 30% of those pilots mm-hmm. succeeded, then it would all be worth it. And I think so, it's also safe to say uh, the people that were for kamikaze pilots were never kamikaze pilots. No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so 3,800 Japanese pilots plunged to their doom during Ooh. the last days of World War II, killing 7,000 American servicemen. And the kamikaze pilots themselves were not that thrilled either. Some of them were. It must have been horrifying. There were some true believers, but a lot of them were forced. And a lot of times when they were forced to sign up, they would have to, they would have this sheet where they would have to sign up to volunteer. And one column was eager and one column was very eager. There was no no. They also used to This is like a PlayStation review where it's like, did you like it? Did you love it? Did you love it? Love it? Just tell us. (laughs) And they also would beat them into submission. Uh, They would break them down and beat them. And this was, uh, this was obviously very scary. And then yeah. certain things they would, they would do, they would purposely overload planes. According to one uh, witness that they had went and they had overloaded a plane to basically show like, look how happy everybody is to be inside and go kill themselves. They love it. Oh, Meanwhile, my. they're all like, yay, as they <laughs> well, left. In, in some ways, we could. this is adjacent to a death cult, isn't it? Yeah. There was a man, one of the leaders of the kamikaze unit, the Vice Admiral Motomi Ugaki, who actually, when they finally realized that the, the ending had finally come, he committed suicide by kamikaze because he felt it was only honorable. So he oh. loaded up, he saluted everybody for one last go, and then took off. But there was no registered uh, boat sinking. Because there's also a lot of, like, there's a lot of discrepancies about how, how effective the kamikazes yeah. were. Sure. Yeah. But what's truly amazing is that kamikaze tactics weren't just used in the air. By sea, 
Some Japanese submarines were actually outfitted with piloted kamikaze torpedoes. Jesus Why Christ. not just use missiles? God, just, <laughs> they wanted you to see how serious they were about winning. But that's the thing is that the Americans didn't know that there were people in these torpedoes. They did it because it was efficient and because it was more, it was just that they could get the target. They could hit the target more times if there was a guy actually piloting this kamikaze torpedo than Oof. if they just shot one out of the submarine. Okay. Known as the Kaiten, these torpedoes were 60 feet long, less than six feet wide, and piloted by one man in a suicide mission of deadly precision. Wow. Once the pilot boarded the torpedo and closed the hatch, however, there was no escape. Oh, man. Hey, but, hey before you go, you want some gum or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd love some gum. <laughs> Sorry, too late. We're going to have to close this. Yeah, oh, I shouldn't just even ask. I'll yeah. be back. Okay. Oh. Where a kamikaze pilot could turn back if mechanical trouble prevented him from succeeding in his mission, no such option was available to the pilot of a Kaiten. Oh my gosh. It was impossible to redock with the submarine that launched him. So if the mission could not be completed for whatever reason, the pilot had the choice of either detonating his warhead in the open sea or sinking to the ocean floor where he would suffocate to death. Down and down and All right, so basically <laughs> you're exploding in Davy Jones's locker. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> I guess this just sucks either way, huh? <laughs> So after the USS Indianapolis suffered a kamikaze pilot attack in the lead-up to the invasion of Okinawa, the ship returned to the Mare Island shipyard in San Francisco, which we mentioned briefly in our series on Alcatraz Penitentiary. Did you know that Alcatraz means pelican? Pelicans. Did not know that. Yeah. Did not know that. Wow. <laughs> the repairs took months, and in the interim, history moved along at a rapid pace. In just the last three weeks of April 1945, President Franklin Roosevelt died. Got him. Benito Mussolini, the dictator of Italy, was publicly executed by his own people. Got and him. Finally, Adolf Hitler shot himself in the face in his Berlin bunker. That he happened in three weeks. Wow. wow. That's wow. a lot of uh it's a lot of people who should be dead dying. Yeah, that's except a lot for of Roosevelt. Roosevelt, except Roosevelt, for Roosevelt, should, of Roosevelt should have survived, yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. Were, are we upset about Roosevelt or do we like Roosevelt? We like Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Those was, the Japanese inter, the Japanese internment camps were a bad thing, but overall That was bad. Yeah, that was bad. But we but like overall the idea pretty of successful. Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the chair. Pretty successful presidency overall. Yeah. There's but always there a was, couple of asterisks. <laughs> Apparently. But there was still one more world-changing event in 1945 that the USS Indianapolis would take a direct role. This was the event that perhaps defined the second half of the 20th century. The USS Indianapolis was involved in the dropping of the atomic bomb <gasps> on Japanese soil. Oh. See, the atomic bomb hadn't even been tested when the USS Indianapolis docked in San Francisco because Roosevelt had never given the final go-ahead to the team developing the bomb. Of course, the team developing the bomb was the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. We are going to do a full atomic series. Oh, a my gigantic, God, I would love, I'd love that. A gigantic, multi-part, full atomic series that goes from fucking Oppenheimer to Nagasaki mm. and beyond. Yeah, we're going to do it. I know it's a comedy, but uh, Dr. Strangelove just rewatched it last week. Just so freaking good. My favorite comedy. 
It's absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite. It's right behind Apocalypse Now when oh, it comes to my favorite movies. So, I thought you were going to call Apocalypse Now a comedy, and then we're going to end the show, and then we're going to say actually you need to go to the hospital. Well, that's like a film critic's version of a comedy. You know what I mean? Like that's the mm-hmm. thing where it's like when they when they get into it, when film critics laugh at things, it's like Phantom Thread where they go to watch it and they're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed very hard at certain moments. I love Doctor, Doctor Strange. Strange Love. Oh, I Doctor Strange Love is truly funny. <laughs> truly funny. But when President Truman, who of course succeeded President Roosevelt, when he learned that America was in possession of potentially the most powerful weapon in existence. Uh, what are we doing o- here? What are we doing here? What do we got here? Come on. What do you tell me we got in there? There's some kind of boom, boom. A boom, boom, boom. So your Truman is Ross Perot? Come on. Okay. Let me finish. Not too far off. Well, Truman <laughs> ordered the immediate deployment of a combat-ready nuclear weapon to drop on Japan. Can we but- drop it now? Oh Can we my. drive it now? Can I see it now? Can you put some wheels on? I'll drive it around. And I would also like to know Truman, very tiny man. Hey man, little Import- guy syndrome should never be in, in, in office. Important men don't need all of this body. <laughs> <laughs> but while the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki had horrific effects beyond just the initial blast, it's not like America wasn't already killing Japanese civilians en masse. Mm-hmm. In April of 1945, our bombing tactics on Japanese soil switched to low-altitude firebombing that focused on factories that supplied materials to manufacture military aircraft. That meant we were bombing civilian targets. In just one firebombing in downtown Tokyo, approximately 105,000 people were killed in two hours and 45 minutes, destroying a fifth of the city. It was the deadliest air raid in history, surpassing Hiroshima and more than doubling the death toll in Nagasaki. And you never hear about it because it was just regular bombs. Just regular old run-of-the-mill carpet bombing. By one survivor's account, a baby was seen to catch fire on a mother's back, and the people who worked in the targeted factories were reduced to heaps of charred bones. And specifically... This area had been chosen because it was deemed the easiest to burn. But that's why we made the atomic bomb, so we could stop ourselves from doing these horrible things, Marcus. (laughs) I mean, also, whoever decided to build all the houses out of matches needs to be fired. (laughs) Horrible construction company. But after this massive war crime was deemed a success on all fronts, we increased the practice to 60 more cities killing what is conservatively placed at 300,333 Japanese civilians. Wow. Although some estimates place the number far higher. And that's why we went, stop it. Oh, my hand. Stop it, everyone. <laughs> little slap on the wrist indeed. Harry Truman's like, make a bigger one. We got to so... We just keep dropping all the tiny little bombs. I'll fill with a little spark, 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 going, boom, 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 boom. We do one big one. Just go. (laughs) Right? Come on. There's nothing scarier than a little guy trying to be tough. It's very awful and horrifying. And I would assume that the estimate is low because I'm sure we killed more than that. But for reasons that will go into full when we cover the atomic bomb, President Truman decided that the firebombing of Japanese cities wasn't doing the trick. So (sighs) he ordered the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. I know you've been saying you're making this mushroom cloud. But what if, but mushrooms, that's France. That's France. <laughs> what if it blows up into some kind of eagle? 
Some big old eagle. <laughs> oh, that would be kind of fun, like a firework you want. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I can't wait for that when we cover the nukes because there is yeah. the large contingency of people who think that stopped the war and saved lives. I don't know if well, it's killing massive no. people. The it whole thing into war is not really necess- uh, It was not necessary in any well, way. Because they're like, if not, then we have no choice but to roll into the neighborhoods of Tokyo. We have no choice. We have no choice. No. We have no choice. We have to go. So that's what they did. They pinned one against the other, where they said, like, yeah. we'll either roll in with 1,300 uh, battleships and our entire army that now is done with Europe. We'll all just come over to the the Japanese fleet. We'll come. We'll attack the other side of the world. It's. It, we'll get into it. The idea. The idea that the atomic bomb like saved millions of American lives from dying on Japanese soil is a complete and total PR campaign that mm-hmm. was put forth by the American government. Drag we'll him. Into- okay, we'll Drag get into- him. Whoa, Queen. All right, we'll get into it was that a when part, we cover it was nukes. A, it was a part of the PR campaign when it started coming. When stories of the atomic plague started coming out from Hiroshima. But anyway, mm-hmm. we will get to that in the series. Great. But since constructing an atomic bomb in full at Los Alamos and transporting it across America to its eventual destination in the Pacific was deemed a dumb idea for many reasons. Yeah, it just seems like it. Like, what do you do? Is that a UPS like shipment? Like, how do you take a full bomb? Like, you like put a hat on it and be like, this is my cousin Greg. Don't worry about him. He's right. quiet. Hear me out, dude. Dominoes. They say 30 minutes or it's free, bro. What if we do that with nukes, dude? Well, yeah, dude. 30 <laughs> minutes or it's free. This atomic bomb belongs in the back of a Nissan Sentrima of a 19 year old. It does. Since that was a dumb idea, the parts were transported separately to the Tinian Islands, where the atomic bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, would be constructed. <laughs> you see, how bad can Little Boy be? Pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah, Little Boy was uh, the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. Of course, uh, the one that was dropped on Nagasaki, that was Fat Man. Yes, which Mm. I thought was a little insensitive towards the missile. (laughs) I'm just waiting for the fucking photoshops for when we do the series. Exactly. (laughs) And since the USS Indianapolis was a fast ship with a battle-hardened crew that coincidentally happened to be docked in San Francisco, it was chosen to transport the enriched uranium used in the bomb across the ocean. Amazingly, not even the captain knew what their cargo was, and they departed just hours after America detonated the first atomic bomb in history at the Trinity site in New Mexico. That really has to be, I mean, overwhelming, obviously. You're the captain of like one of the most prestigious ships in all of the U.S. Navy. They show up to you essentially the night before, and they say, what we're going to do is we're using your ship as a courier. And then they took the uranium and they... They attached, they welded it to the boat and then they took the crate of all the bomb parts and they put it in there like two guys know what this is. You don't even know what this is. Tomorrow, you guys are shipping out and taking this as fast as humanly possible across the Pacific Ocean. You're not supposed to ask what the fuck's in these boxes. Also, if this ship stinks, the first thing that gets out of this ship are these two boxes. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is in the box indeed? What's in the box? What's in the box? What if it was just Gwyneth Paltrow's head? Well, that would have <laughs> caused equal devastation, I think. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> the problem here was that the speed of the USS Indianapolis came with some potentially fatal trade-offs. Hmm. Since the Indy was maximized for speed, range, and firepower, it had armor so thin that it was among the ships that were designated as tin-clad, as opposed oh. to iron-clad. Oh, no. 
Yeah, you didn't even unlock iron for that, huh? Yeah. What's the point of mining all these resources? <laughs> this meant that it was highly vulnerable to Japanese torpedoes, which were designed to crack stronger ships in two. And the construction of the ship itself prioritized ease of movement over durability. This almost ensured that any crack would quickly fill the ship with seawater and sink the vessel. It was actually just kind of luck that the USS Indianapolis had survived for as long as it had. Because remember, it was built in 1930. And a right. lot of the newer ships were built to withstand these torpedoes and were built with the Japanese military in mind. But you know, the old adage is that every mil the beginning of every war is a failure because the they're essentially fighting the last war. Right. The USS Indy had a sort of reputation of being like one of the best of the best. Well, it is yeah. seemed to be a we, lot. You it's, almost give human characteristics to it, it seems. Well, it's because it's about the captains of the ship, I think, quite a bit in mm, the crews. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. like, they used it effectively and they ended up, like, kind of, I guess, how, let me, this is my sports. Yeah. How, like, they get the sports, the best sportsmen all arrive on the same teams sometimes because it what, seemed to what be what kind of sport? The, there is um, <laughs> lacrosse. Just, dude, just say, okay. like, 90s. Cowboys. Just say 90s Cowboys. Say 1995 Cowboys. Oh, you're talking about, I think you're just talking about men. <laughs> <laughs> no, just the 90, or 1996, the 1996 Dallas Cowboys. Sure. Just say that. Them. Yeah. Like that. And what do they do? Oh, they spend money and they get big jewels. <laughs> you got to fight for that inch. Absolutely. I forget how I got here. That's, that's actually good. Fight for every yeah. inch. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, shortly after the USS Indianapolis dropped off the uranium for the world's First offensive atomic bomb. That's exactly what happened. Live from your grave. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it. But guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right. Give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with 
horse picks. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse picks over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports, and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. And isn't that what matters most? Better writing means a stronger impact. Grammarly works across 500,000 apps and websites. You can't escape it. Like the ever-pervasing octopus of malice that is the NSA. Grammarly is watching your every move, making sure that you're doing it right. Data privacy and security are woven into the foundation of Grammarly, into the very essence of its nature. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner, and it helps your team make their point and move faster, because that's the key there. Work smarter, not harder. That's Grammarly. You know how many times it saves me from writing a long, rambling, one-sentence email at 4 o'clock in the morning to my beloved employees? Makes me sound like someone who doesn't just have a BA in theater. All right. I was taught how to be a tree. I was not taught how to survive as an adult. All right. My job was to cry in front of a weird Southern man who just told me all sorts of weird stuff about my body. I didn't learn how to write. So thank you, Grammarly, because you're making me the boss I gotta be to motivate my team to get out there. Oh, man, you don't want to mess with them. Thanks, Grammarly. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free. Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Now, considering how vulnerable the Indy was, an escort destroyer ship on the way to its next destination probably would have been a good idea. But the captain of the USS Indianapolis, Charles B. McVeigh III, was told that there was no Japanese submarines between him and the Indy's next destination in the Philippines. So nobody, including higher-ranking naval commanders, saw any need for an escort. Damn. You know, it just feels like, honestly, uh, mm, uh, mm, you're going to need to get an escort. Every, yeah. <laughs> life is always better with an escort. <laughs> uh, uh, 40 years old today, man. Yeah, okay. 39 and holding. Uh, 39 and holding. Well, unbeknownst to Captain McVeigh, though, there were, in fact, four Japanese submarines between him mm. and his destination. Ugh. But this fact, known to certain intelligence bureaus, was buried under a sea of information. See, the Allies had long since broken the encrypted Axis military codes, and they were churning out two million pages of intelligence 
per week from Japanese communications alone. Problem here, though, is that the Allies didn't want to tip their hand as far as how much they knew. So the intelligence they gathered was handed out very carefully. Was there also some... This is where I actually have a little bit of confusion. Was there not some hesitancy to give them an escort because the mission was so secret? The mission was over. Oh, by the time, but when they went there, like they, that was the big risky they had part a, is that no, they, they went without a, an escort yeah. to the island. Yeah. To but they, after Tinian though, this, all of this happened after Tinian. Yes, so the, I know that. The, the top secret mission is over at this okay. point. Yes. Yeah. So they got the, the uranium. Yeah. And Hiroshima happened. We, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it happened. They, they yeah. did it. And so literally they're like, in their minds, maybe they're a little relaxed. They're like, we did it. We dropped off our payload. Now let's just go chill out and everything will be fine. Yeah, I mean, they don't know what they dropped What they dropped off. They don't know what happened. All they know is that they had a mission, they completed it, and now they're on the way to the Philippines for their next mission. Okay. I, think it was, I think the next thing they had to do was like gunnery practice. Uh, mm. Like not, it, nothing extremely, there wasn't, a, they, they were, the top secret shit was over. Okay. They were so, supposed to be running tests, which is the part of the reason why they weren't discovered. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as such, the USS Indianapolis went out solo into the lonely, shark-infested waters of the Pacific Ocean. Now, at around the same time, (laughs) now at around the same time that the Indy was delivering the uranium to the Tinian Islands, a Japanese submarine commander named Mochitsura Hashimoto was given orders to move into the sea west of Guam to find an enemy to attack. So, on the evening of July 29th. 1945, Hashimoto's submarine, designated I-58, spotted the USS Indianapolis through its night periscope, making this the first real opportunity Hashimoto had in his four years as commander to sink an American ship. How exciting for him. I guess so. <laughs> also, is the night periscope, is that just in lingerie and like when you look through it, it's kind of sexy? <laughs> oh my Ooh, God, that's totally going to be the name of the bar that we opened. The night, night periscope. periscope. Oh my God. Right by Gapers. <laughs> right next to Gapers. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now, when it comes to what Captain McVeigh could have done to prevent the sinking of a ship, the word that comes up again and again is zigzag. You got a zigzag. See, in waters where submarines are known to lurk, ships like the Indy are supposed to take a zigzag course to avoid submarine torpedoes. Okay. But since Captain McVeigh was explicitly told that there were no submarines in the area, he was not zigzagging, nor should he have been, by naval standards. Hmm. Nevertheless, it would later be on this point that the entire USS Indianapolis disaster would be blamed on Captain McVeigh. So you're telling me if I went back in time, all I would have to do is tell the captain to zigzag to avoid this whole thing? But that no, it, it wouldn't have mattered at all. Because what's truly tragic is that even if Captain McVeigh was zigzagging, it still wouldn't have mattered. Okay. Uh, upon spotting the Indy alone out in the sea, Commander Hashimoto decided to fire a fan of six torpedoes to ensure that at least one of them hit. That completely negated the zigzag method. Right. Oh man, I made a zigzag, a zag, zig. And honestly, yeah. when it comes down to it, no U.S. Navy commander's trained a zag, zig. No, it's impossible to do. I never actually heard of someone doing it. Because the first thing you have to do is suck a dick. I think you would have to zigzag backwards if you zag, zigged. I mean, honestly, I mean, sure. And I don't know why you would have to suck a dick at any time. Because technically, it's illegal to be gay in the military at the time. So you'd have to do mm-hmm. the opposite of what's illegal at the time, but actually was probably very prevalent. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. there was a lot of men inside of each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And <laughs> no, I mean it's not like the idea that people weren't getting it on. Yeah, everybody. Oh, I would. Right. I mean, I would. You're if I was stressed me. out. Oh yeah, sure. fucking, We're here. We're de- we're delivering this uranium. Maybe I'm the only guy who knows. Suck my dick. I would find a twink <laughs> on there, and I would cuddle. We would cuddle consensually together. So scary. Now it's it's, it's prison you, rules. The way you it's said prison rules. You said the term "find a twink on the boat." Like the idea of you walking around looking <laughs> for the. Wait, how you decided that? I'd love to know. There's I'm not a lot on the vote. I'm too big. I for the see boat. the the boys over there. That's a good boy. Okay, I <laughs> I am an officer. I, am, I can I be thanked for my service, please? <laughs> Even if the fan technique didn't work, I-58 also had plenty of kamikaze torpedoes. That fucker was going down no matter what. But as it happened, the kaiten weren't necessary. At 12.15 a.m., Hashimoto's torpedo detonated on the Indy's starboard bow, killing dozens of men instantly and opening the front of the ship to seawater. And also, like how we talked about how in certain episodes of the Black Death series that it's nothing but screaming. Yeah. Know that this is nothing but screaming from here on out. Everyone is screaming from this point forward. Yeah, because they got to go dog them down. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think, would you rather scream in space or scream underwater? No one's hearing you either way, but uh, this is one of my being in a space shuttle is my number one nightmare. Stuck Mm -hmm. in open water is my number two nightmare. I think Mm. I'm going to have to reverse that. I think I would rather float up in the air than be under the water. Water is so scary because there's no there's no air sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Not that we know of. (laughs) Not that we know of. Those are drones. Yes, that is true. Those are drones. Now, concerning the power of these torpedoes, the Type 95 used by the Japanese was designed to mortally wound battleships. The first blast would buckle the ship's skin, while the second warhead was meant to punch a hole in the ship itself, breaking it in half. Now, soon after the initial torpedo, a second torpedo followed. This one ignited the aviation fuel stores, which severely burned anyone below deck in the forward part of the ship, in addition to creating a gigantic oil slick on the ocean surface. So if this was Mr. Bean and he was sliding around the oil on fire, technically it would be funny, but it's our boys. I think technically it would not be funny. (laughs) Mr. Bean would make it funny. He'd sell it, he'd make it funny. It's Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson is truly unbelievable because if you see him in real life, he's quite handsome. But Mr. Bean isn't so handsome, but you're like, how did he do that? That's acting. (laughs) Um, My image was just the young zitty kid who should just be in high school probably. Just like... Getting drafted, going to do this thing for the country, and then oh. all of a sudden, burning alive Whoa. in the middle of the ocean. You know, I a heard a lot of teenagers on the show. Oh God! I heard a little gum wrapper tell me war is hell. That's <laughs> <laughs> a weird laffy taffy you take. Well, seawater then came rushing in, drowning anyone caught in its path, oh. and also people became trapped in these. Because as Henry said, Dalgan, they had to try to close some of these chambers, so they tried to close some of the decks to prevent the ship from sinking. So you know, right. you had the old scene of a guy banging on the door, "Let me out, no, let me out, no, let me out," until the fucking no. water just rises above. No, oh, oh, no, no, it's not. He's yeah, that's freaking brutal. Yeah. yeah, but once the torpedoes had done their job, the chaos set in. As men dashed to their battle stations, unaware that the fight was already lost, they ran past 
fellow servicemen with melted flesh dripping from their faces Ooh. and bones jutting through their skin. Am I going to make it back home? Oh, my God. Have we won the war? Yes, yeah. yes, Billy. We won. The war is over. You're at home now. Die, die, die. Just die. Oh, die, die, die. Just die now. Oh, they said in that, those initial moments, like this, the immediate screaming was horrifying. But at least in those initial moments, that screaming died within a couple of minutes because Ooh. all of those guys died as well. And everyone else is just trying to save the ship. Sounds like the bad guy from RoboCop who just melts and gets hit by the car and explodes. Yeah. yeah. Now, Captain McVeigh believed in the immediate moment after the torpedo attacks that he could control the damage and save the ship. Because after all, the USS Indianapolis had survived some pretty heavy blasts already. But since all communications went down immediately after the initial blast, Captain McVeigh had no idea how bad the damage in the engine room actually was. To put it into perspective, when the second torpedo hit, a colossal steam leak Flash boiled any men who were unlucky enough to be in that section. God, God have you seen it, the remake of Flash Dance? Flash boiled. I, oh, that was such <laughs> a great one. The way they dance and the temperature slowly rises and they all and then turn into they melt. dumplings. Yeah. Except for one nipple. That was such a powerful <laughs> conclusion. The one nipple that stays on the stage. And since all communications were down, there was also. No way to send out a direct message telling any other ships what had happened, where they were, or that they needed immediate rescue. Oh my God, yeah. They could have they could have used an SOS, like the great song that the police made. Well, they actually did send out like a general SOS. Okay. Uh, but no one picked it up. Nobody cared. No, well, no, just no one was around to hear it. No one was oh, around to I catch see. it. Sure. And it was just a general SOS of like, we don't know where we are. We don't know what happened. SOS, SOS, SOS. Like, because they didn't have time to, they didn't have time to give actual coordinates or anything. It's just SOS, 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 and the vague hope that someone would catch it. And nobody did. Right. So within seven minutes of the initial strike, a commander arrived on the bridge from the engine room to tell McVeigh that the situation was hopeless. The order to abandon ship was given, but again, since all communications were down, the order had to be passed man to man. I've given it all she's got, Captain. <laughs> I've given it all she's but got. You, you know, if you ever play the game of telephone, the miscommunication that occurs, I'm sure one guy, just by the time it got to him, he's just like, what was that? Go to bed? It's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> it's Taco Tuesday. That's what you wanted to tell me? But Blam Bim Bip? No. 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 But Blam Bim Bip? What? The survivors began cutting down life preservers as the ship listed and sank further into the ocean, and they soon started hopping over the side into the open sea. But while the engine room was damaged beyond hope, the propellers of the USS Indianapolis were still pushing the ship forward. Oh, no. That meant that when all was said and done, the men who had jumped from the sinking ship were strung along a path of two miles in Oof. clumps of survivors. Some were lucky enough to escape with rafts and some were able to grab life jackets, but many were simply left to swim. Others, however, chose to end it quickly. One machinist said that he saw two stewards leap over the back of the ship right into the twirling propellers, which instantly ripped both men to shred. Yikes. Private Sanderson, do you remember when I taught you how to zag zig? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'll always remember other Private Thompson. <laughs> Let's go, baby. Oh. Let's go hand in hand, baby. I don't know if it was that romantic. No. 
These were only two of the approximately 300 men who died before the USS Indianapolis even went underwater. As the tail of the Indy finally sank into the sea, the suction pulled even more men down to a watery grave, Mm. and the surviving 890 were left to float in the waters 12 minutes after the first torpedo struck the ship. What a difference 15 minutes can make. I'll tell you what, if I was in there, I'd be like, hey, I didn't have this on my 1945 bingo card. (laughs) You are unbelievably talented. Uh, Toss-up question, not not of these survivors. Let's say you have to die within the first 12 minutes. How do you want to go? I'm thinking I almost just want to have the initial blast just right in my gut. I just Because everything else seems scarier. You want to be right on the other side of the hull from the initial torpedo blast because so then you just takes you just yeah you're just gone the the explosion the pressure of the explosion just I mean shreds your body and then you're done you're just even out. the flash boiled is at least fast oh, at least it's yeah. a flash boil versus a slow poach yeah like, that's, that's fine it's but honestly I'd like to live well, so I, I can go on the speaking <laughs> tours I of course of course. In the immediate aftermath of the sinking, the 890 survivors found themselves to be in a sea covered in the fuel oil that had gushed from the Indy as it sank, all in a midnight darkness that only increased their fear. Furthermore, the survivors knew that sharks swam in these waters. Oh my God, and those sharks belong to ExxonMobil. Honestly. And they want their oil back. They wish they were <laughs> as evil as those sharks. Real sharks are fairly neutral, but they're hungry. And I tell you what, there was more white tips in that ocean than Ooh. there is on all of the heads of Less Than Jake. Oh wow, look at that. Very good Less Than Jake reference. Now nobody escaped from the Indy completely unscathed, but some men were worse off than others. One crewman said that he found a close friend covered in flash burns that were so bad, it looked as if his face was melting off. Tell me, tell me, do you see anything weird about my face? (laughs) No, Bob, everything looks... um, There's something, is my mascara running or something? (laughs) Some people keep turning away from me. It's actually... They keep screaming and saying I remind them of a ghost. Yeah, it's it's just so funny, uh, the way that... Don't look in the mirror. Come closer to me. I'm actually going to do the opposite. I'm actually going to go zigzag. Come closer to me. All right, zigzag, bud. Well, according to the survivor... His friend screamed in agony for an hour as oil and salt water (laughs) filled his wounds before he finally and mercifully died. I can't think of a worse tub to be in than salt water and oil when you're covered in burns. This also is a group of people that have immediately turned into the the, uh, game over man like Mm -hmm. guy immediately been like, we're fucked. Man, <laughs> yeah, I get it now. Yeah. Now, the crew of the Japanese submarine was thrilled that they'd finally sunk a ship, and many of them wanted to go and finish what they'd started. Commander Hashimoto, however, wouldn't allow it. He said they'd already done their job. Wow. Okay. The submarine then sped away, leaving the men of the USS Indianapolis to four days of horror in the water. Oh, man. This is fucking honesty. It does scare me, man. It's this shit scares the dude. shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Now, once the submarine left, the men took stock of their situation and found that they were clumped together in groups over a two-mile-long oil slick, so far apart that many groups believed they were the only survivors. Wow. 
but even the groups that were closer together were only close for the first night. As the days stretched on, the groups drifted further apart, and by the first dawn, the survivors had already drifted five miles from the site of the sinking. Rodney, I just feel like I don't even know you anymore. I'm just, I just feel like we're drifting apart literally. Yeah, and, I just wish I'd die. Yeah, I actually was hoping that you would. I'm melting and I'm all full of salt. It's an emotional distancing we're having. <laughs> Those, however, were the smaller groups. Out of the 890 initial survivors, there was one large group that made up almost half of the men, some with life jackets and some just treading water, trying to survive as long as they could. You're yeah. just like dog paddling that's me yeah i'm just dog it's paddling. so scary you're sitting there you try it you can't even really like because also you're covered in oil right yeah. you're covered in like covered in oil and these life preservers are only built to last for two days in the water well as we know from the wonderful oil spills that happen on a regular basis specifically we can go to 19 uh what was it 1991 there we had that little uh that little oil spill in the gulf exxon spill i think that was 89 maybe 89 either way it oil likes to float yeah, yeah. Did it help at all? Yeah. When it comes <laughs> to, when it comes why, to honestly, keeping I, people above water. Well, have, we went to Italy. Do you remember how the boats sit on top of the water? Just because yes. of the sheer sheen oh of, my of, of their <laughs> hair product, just like on the, the on the Mediterranean. I know everyone is like, I want to be in Amsterdam. I want to be in the canal. And then you get there and you're like, that's the toilet. <laughs> Which is true. But it's still, it's beautiful, though. I love it. I'm it not going to diss it. I'm not dissing. You're One thing fighting. the oil actually did is that it worked as a kind of light sunscreen. Uh, oh. So the men who they were, they did come out of the water. The survivors did come out of the water, like horribly burned, but not as burned as they could have been. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Black Gold. <laughs> Thank you. But as it goes with military operations, officers took charge and life jackets were tied to lines so the unvested could hold on. Okay. What few life rafts existed were mostly reserved for the most severely injured, although some life rafts sank when too many men tried climbing on. Oh, my God. You know big fat Tom was like, <laughs> did he rip on there for me? Actually, uh, I like, should oh really go God, on dude, there. Can you not, please? Listen, when I was on the deck, I twisted my ankle. Oh, my dude. <laughs> I'm really going to need to get can on this raft. No. Okay. <laughs> the officers then told the men to resist the urge to vomit up the un godly amounts of seawater and oil that they'd already swallowed because they had no idea when they would be rescued and the preservation of fluids was priority number one wow one interesting observation made by one of the survivors though is that for the most part the men who lived to tell the tale were the younger ones that wasn't because they were stronger but rather because they didn't know enough to know just how fucked they were because they still had optimism. They still because had what it hope. seemed like is that the scariest part was especially the night. Yeah. Is that when the first night came, mm. it's like I was listening to some of these survivors like talk and it is harrowing. And just like, you know, one guy's like, in the night, you don't know what happened. I was next to Uncle Ed. I called him Uncle Ed. He was only two years older than me, but I called him <laughs> Uncle Ed. He was my friend. And in the night, he was gone. Yeah. And then there was Canada Joe. He was from Detroit. Oh. And I said, hey, Canada Joe, hey, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where, where are you? And he was gone. It's very scary. Damn. So by morning, the survivors had drifted 10 miles from the sinking site in three main groups 
and even more smaller ones. And each of these groups was commanded by officers. And the men commanding the largest groups were Glenn Morgan, Felton Outland, and Richard Redmayne. Are these all just born to be commanders in the U.S. Navy? (laughs) Do you just get a certain last name and then you're made to be an officer? Yeah, yeah. Richard Redmayne is like one of the best World War II names. Glenn Morgan. Captain Glenn Morgan. Captain Glenn Morgan. Captain Glenn Morgan sometimes (laughs) a suck dick, but only in Italy. Whoa, good Morgan to you. Now, as I said, some groups had life rafts, but others only had jackets. One group, made up only of jacketed survivors, lost a third of their men by the first morning and soon found themselves surrounded by a school of floating corpses that refused to go away. Well, it's because they also, they uh, they were tied to them sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And then they would just float and float and float. They, a lot of, they died of a dehydration. They died of uh, shock. They died from their injuries. Mm-hmm. So they started building up, especially in that first day. But mm-hmm. then it just seems like having a bunch of just sort of like meat around would be bad. Yeah. As far as Captain McVeigh went, he was relatively lucky. His group was only nine men strong, and they managed to escape with a life draft, a sheet of canvas to gather rainwater, some morphine, a bit of brackish water, and enough emergency rations to last 10 days. Oh, I got a guy's... film projector. I got yeah. a torpedo. I actually have a full toilet seat. Yes. So we can actually enjoy that. And um, also, I, I saved this bag of croutons. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah, they're on a carnival cruise compared to what other people are going through. Yeah. As far as the men in the water went, they very quickly began spotting the shadowy forms of sharks swimming below. Now, this area of the ocean was home to six species of shark, but the most likely culprit here was the oceanic white tip, what you might call shark classic. When you imagine a shark, this is what you imagine. Long dorsal fin, um, very aggressive. Yeah. Called the yogore by the Japanese in an assemblage of kanji characters that convey the words pollute, defile, and rape. The white tip is the worst possible shark to show up in this situation. But Uh sometimes you don't get the shark you wish for, you get the shark that shows up. I guess so. (laughs) Yeah, because you want the titty and money and food shark to show up. Yeah, that'd be nice. I don't think there is a shark like that. I mean, not yet, but science will prevail. The hammerhead is quite a nice shark. The hammerhead is is a very nice shark. There's actually very nice sharks out there, but the... The white tip is not one that you want to fuck with, really. We're not saying that the white tip's the evil. I think because we're, we're, we're going to have to dial back some of the talk about sharks being like killing machines, which no. is why they're overfished and all that shit. But honestly, when it comes down to it, can you help these sharks? Can these sharks help it? You have all these like bleeding, <laughs> yeah. screaming pink, like because they have to remove all their clothes, too. They don't even have clothes oh, in the way. My. They're all yeah. just like out there just treading water. It's like if... If you left the five cheeseburgers in front of Kissel's house and expect him not to get kidnapped. You know what I mean? Like if someone to grab him and they yeah. just scooped him up with a crate. Yeah, no, this, you gotta get the burgers. This is simply nature. This is 890 men entering the food chain. And this is what happens. Now, white tips are usually loners. But when a food source is plentiful, as it was in the aftermath of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, white tips form groups for the feeding frenzy to come. Oh, they're going out to dinner with friends. Yeah. <laughs> it is like that. And as far as the sharks were concerned, they just found a two-mile-long bucket of chum. 
Besides the burns, men had suffered from broken limbs and wide gashes, which all pumped a constant stream of blood into the ocean waters. And sharks can smell blood from a quarter mile away. So you have a two mile long stretch of men all bleeding and out of those two miles, quarter mile in each direction. Shark, 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 shark. Honestly, that's really lucky for those sharks because all I ever smell is blood. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna want to get that checked out. I just I just smell blood. I see blood everywhere I look. Looks like it's covered in blood. It's a hell of a time to be a shark here. And the broken limbs and gashes were the best case scenario injuries. At worst, you had the fate of Officer Stanley Lipsky. His eyes appeared to have boiled in their <laughs> sockets, oh, no! and what was left of his hands were nothing more than charred meat clinging to bones oh my no, god that he dude. was that the whole time he was kind of like the nerd from toxic avenger too where he yeah. was just like the guy they walking around the lovable nerdy guy who's just like you guys want to play a game of chess and they're like get out of here we're zagzig and and then he goes into the water and he's covered with burns but he doesn't shit. turn into a superhero dude no no he turns he just into screams he turns into oh. technically in chef's terms he was charred yeah, yeah. oh my it god it brought out the natural sugars that's i'm sure mm-hmm. it's very good Meanwhile, Allied Codebreakers had intercepted a vague message from Commander Hashimoto saying that he'd scored three hits on a ship and sunk it. Now, this was a slight exaggeration, and Japanese commanders were known to exaggerate successes to lure American ships on search and rescue missions. So, hoping that this was just one of those things, the intercepted transmission became just one of the 500 received that day alone. But even if they'd made it a priority, they didn't have the type of vessel, they didn't have the location. It was impossible to know what exactly happened. There was no reason for them to go out and look. You never want your search and rescue team to be like, let's table it. We'll circle back. Yeah, Yeah. let's circle back. We'll circle back and table that. Oh, my gosh. But what's most distressing about the sinking of the Indy is that when it did not arrive on time to its destination in the Philippines, its name was simply taken off the board which, at the time, was Navy policy. See, there were thousands of ships in the Pacific, and reporting the arrival and departure of every single ship had resulted in too much communication. So, when the Indy didn't arrive on time, which, by the way, wasn't that unusual anyway, no one noticed. Didn't they have, like, a week lead time or something? There was, like, something that was, like, if it was a week late, they'd know. But then yeah. if it's like a certain, but a week, if they had went That's a week. so late. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In other words, nobody was coming Uh-oh. for the badly injured survivors of the USS Indianapolis. And they were starting to notice the sharks swimming below. Yeah, this one survivor kept saying he felt the sharks start to nudge his feet. So I was oh. watching a bunch of footage of white tips, and mm-hmm. it's it's like they're cool, right? Like they're you know, cool the David Attenborough. Them. If the, he did uh, his show, whatever his show is, David Attenborough, and it's all been like, can you see the absolute delight? that the sharks take in taunting the photographer. And so, like, you know, they're, like, going after this photographer who's fucking nuts, and these white tips bump you to see how you react. And so there was one survivor talking about how, like, he was floating, and at first, you'd feel them come up and touch your feet, and you'd try to pull your feet up to get away from them, but it's like, then you just get used to it. Because you just like, fuck it, let them touch my feet. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? You know, honestly, maybe I'll ride it. Flip it in reverse Mm -hmm. and pretend you like it. But even if someone had noticed that they didn't show up, the survivors had already floated 20 miles from the sinking site by the evening 
of the first day. Now, by accounts, the first group attacked by a shark was Buck Gibson's. Mm. A shark barreled up from below and locked its jaws around the hand of Kozel Smith, dragging him 10 feet below the surface in an instant. Oh, so fucking scary. Very scary. Refu- refusing to let the shark win, Smith punched it in the nose. Woo! But still, the shark snapped its head back and forth in an attempt to saw off Smith's hand with its teeth. <laughs> that's from what I gathered from what I was watching. That's how sharks, they, they do it. They bite in and then they uh. shake their head back and forth like a saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finally, though, Smith jabbed his finger into a soft spot on the shark's body, and the shark let go. But Smith's ordeal wasn't over. When he emerged from the water with a bloody, shredded hand, the men in the Gibson group told him to stay away because they knew enough about sharks to know that blood would only attract more sharks. But I'm getting dizzy, man. I need to stay with you, man. I can't fucking let me hold on to the lifesaver, man. So when Smith tried rejoining the circle, they kicked and clubbed him. But since he had so much adrenaline from the shark attack, he managed to make it to the middle of a floater net. And that is when another sailor pulled out a knife and attempted to murder Kozel Smith. Damn, dude. Dude, this is not even, this is just the tip of it, man. Realizing that his only chance of survival was to go it alone, Smith swam about 100 feet away from the group with no life jacket, kicking his feet to stay afloat until he very quickly sunk and died. And you know the whole time he's just like, guess I'll just be over here right. alone <laughs> while you guys are all over there. I'm just going to sit here and oh. what I'm going to do is sing a song about <laughs> floating in the ocean till I die. Never gonna let you sleep. <laughs> wow. He could slowly used... disappears. Yeah, yeah, of course. Some shark repellent. Yeah. Shark <laughs> no, but he good. was shark attractant. Yeah, he was yeah. shark attract. I mean, I understand the tough decisions that have to be made. Of course. In very difficult mm-hmm. times. It just sucks. Oh, no, it's yeah. a fucked situation. Yeah. Yeah. Live from your grave. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It says here I have to talk about something I need to get off my chest, and I guess I can share it here. I, I eat mayonnaise for fun, it's a hobby of mine. And it's an addiction. And it's a daily weight on my life. How much I need whipped egg whites and oil crammed into my veins as soon as I wake up. And a lot of people carry around a lot of different stressors, big and small. Some people are presidents. Some people are soldiers. Some people have to eat mayonnaise, especially with hard-boiled eggs, which is what I eat for lunch. But I guess I should share that in therapy because therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And what I do is I just add eggs if I have mayonnaise left over. I just continue to add the eggs. But if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I hope they can help me. My God. I hope they can help me. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash LastPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp! H-E-L-P dot com slash LastPod. Hey! 
Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. That's one of my favorite things about it. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Now, personally, I'm in the middle of re-landscaping my yard. I like to do it myself because I called up a landscaper to see how much it costs and it was absolutely insane. Plus, I love dirt. I love getting my hands in the dirt and I love planting things myself. And Fast Growing Trees has given me some wonderful plants that I can use. Like I got this uh, Texas sage, it's purple. I've dug up a whole bunch of horrible bushes and shrubs up in front of my window and in front of my house and put some purple Texas sage up there and it's going to thrive and it's going to look real good. And I don't even have to go to a nursery to buy it. It came to my house. Now, this spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEFT at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code LEFT at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code LEFT. Offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Yeah, we do. Do you love saving money? Oh my God, you bet! Then Philo may be your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. That's amazing! No contracts, no commitments, no hassles. It's just a better way to watch TV. Get with it, people. Philo has an unlimited DVR for one year. Save all your favorite shows so you can watch on your own schedule. Philo allows for multiple profiles and multiple streams, meaning that your children or significant other can't ruin your queue. Never miss a minute of shows like, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. You're going to watch it. You're going to love it. You're going to get involved with it. And it's an extravaganza. You're going to love it. With Philo, you can start watching in seconds for less money and less hassle. Try it yourself with your seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash left. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash L-E-F-T to get 50% off your first month. Well, in the group led by Richard Redmayne, a survivor named Harpo Salias said that the sharks had effectively set up a patrol. While Harpo closed his eyes, waiting for death, he said that he heard a scream unlike any he'd heard before, which turned out to be the sound of a man being eaten alive by sharks. So you do make a sound if you're being eaten alive, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's not... <laughs> it's not good. Oh, um, man. But they, I will say, to be fair to the sharks, they say a lot of it is you, you can't really estimate how many people were eaten alive. No. He, but a lot of them were eaten dead. And the thing is, is that sharks are not exactly asking questions and, and, and filling out customer surveys to see who's hands. alive and who's dead. So they don't yeah. really know who's alive and who's dead. I actually think they would probably prefer the dead ones because it's easier for them to pull it down. Then they can do the group munch and then it's gone. Where it's yeah. like a thing still kicking and screaming is still difficult to eat. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I think the fresher, the better. I don't know if sharks care. I don't think they care. Okay. I think they would probably. I, I know scientists say that the sharks probably ate more dead men uh, than living men. But the fact remains that sharks ate a fuck of a lot of living men. And oh, yeah, bit. man. Sure. A lot of living men. Like 100 lot. people when, were dead. 
500 when people men, when men came out of the water they were covered in shark bites sure uh, so it was not uh they give the, little nips yeah. You give little nips to see, yeah. uh, they get little chunks to see well, what kind nice, of meat you are. It's nice the water is already salt water because, you know, those little sharks with little fins, they can't be salt bay. They can't sprinkle the, <laughs> the, the bodies with any kind of, um, any kind of spice or... How far away from Salt Bay are you at all times? Like, in your mind. Like, I think about how salt often bay do you think of Salt <laughs> but Bay? But I also <laughs> don't like him because I heard yeah. the, the, the meat's not very good. No, it's not. It's restaurants was panned yeah. by critics. So yeah. I actually don't really care for him, but I do think about the Salt Bay sometimes. You do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you do. Yeah. Now, amidst the chaos, <laughs> there were moments of true courage. Some men kept their heads and swam around their groups, encouraging, assisting, and comforting others when they could, while others loaned their life jackets to the more exhausted men until they could catch their breath. Okay. But there was another side to that. While some groups, like Captain Bays, got away with plenty of food to survive, others had little more than half a cracker and a single malted milk ball per day. Inevitably, some men began stealing and hoarding, which led to fights and eventually murders. Yeah, this uh, there was one survivor who talked about f- floating, floating wow. away because it was very dangerous to float away from the groups because that made you very vulnerable to sharks. So he found a crate, and inside of it, he found a bunch of rotted potatoes. Oh. But he knew he had to keep it secret. So he'd be like, come on, come on, and they would go and they'd all eat all of these rotted potatoes and try to keep it down inside of them to keep living. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Buck Gibson's horror was only beginning. When the sun came up on the second day, he saw the bare bones of a young sailor's leg. A shark had eaten it in the night. And when he jostled the boy, Gibson found that the boy was long dead. Although Gibson did keep that body next to him for the entire time they were in the water because he wanted to return the body to uh, the family. It, it oh, was one of those nice. like old World War II promises. There's a lot he of those guys. Do, like, he didn't want to have like a weekend at Bernie's with him. <laughs> I wonder how many times, I mean, I guess you talked to the corpses probably. Oh, for, yeah. I, I imagine at night the loneliness would set in. You'd talk to anybody who was available, but he, that was uh. fairly common. People were trying to keep the dead bodies as much as they could, but the yeah. problem is the dead bodies brought the sharks. Right, yeah. right. Over at McVeigh's group, he began hearing the yelling of men about 1,500 yards away. So amidst a group of five sharks circling their raft, they managed to paddle over so McVeigh could do his duty as a captain. But after four and a half hours of arduous paddling, McVeigh found that the yelling men were not injured, but merely lonely. Tell me, Captain, Captain, I'm so glad you're here. Dude. Tell me if you were gonna be a candy bar which candy bar would you be <laughs> i'd be a fucking shut I, i'd be a I, i'd be a smack you around because you have any idea how many people are dying out here you're only you know we know cam this is oh actually so important captain it's so important if you met marilyn monroe what would you say i am so <laughs> mad at you right now well mcveigh thought i think i'm pretty sure mcveigh believed that he was they were part, one of the only survivors like because remember they were so far apart from each other right. that ship when they were jumping on that ship that fucker was cruising so when he fe- heard the yelling he's like oh there's more survivors and it's just goes like oh, hey but she's kind of bored what you, want on your, what you want on your tombstone? <laughs> oh my I'm god. I'm having pepperoni. I am so done with you. <laughs> now the group that you'd think would be doing relatively okay was Felton Outland's group because they were a tight cluster of four life rafts. But the constant bumping together was creating friction that would eventually destroy the boats. And some of the men were already starting to lose it by the second day. As Henry, because as Henry said, 
they knew they were fucked and they knew no one was coming. So in order to both save the life rafts and to distance himself from the increasingly unstable men, Outland ordered his group to distance themselves for the time being. Okay. This is all very, it is interesting because in a way it feels like schoolyard tactics too where everybody has to cordon off and go into groups like yeah. everyone because has to make sure children, that they, I think. yeah there's a very young a lot of them are very young. yeah well it beca- i mean when you get to survival mode everything becomes very primitive right yeah, and very childlike so it is it, it does things like that do happen quite often yeah do you remember when we almost ran out of granola bars that one show oh st <laughs> paul i'll always remember 2016 we all had a fight over that one last granola bar and i just remember the look in your eyes you're black <laughs> okay. Very good. You got your don't, one. That's yes. your one. Don't Congratulations. Mess with Marcus's snacks. We actually that is very <laughs> no, that true. Is true. That is very true. Very well, true. I mean, I, I, I just it's you he know, did flip out when we ate the other sneaker. The other I didn't Snickers. flip out. I, I didn't did flip out at even, all. I I merely asked, did you eat all of the Snickers? Did you eat all of them? How did you guys eat all of the Snickers? We had like four of them. I'm actually happy that he honestly said that the way that he said it to us. I was not complicit in the Snickers thieving. Um, but I that ate was the, the accusing. <laughs> that was the accusatory. But it was over talk. two days. <laughs> and then, no, it was the first day. No, it, it was, was the, the second day. day. It was no, the second was. day. You came in looking for Snickers. This is what happened out there. <laughs> this is what happened to the crew of the U.S. Indianapolis. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Meanwhile, Richard Maybe Redman. leave the Snickers alone. I now was there for me to eat. No, just leave one. Just leave one. Maybe That's just all leave one. I did leave one, one and then I ate it. Because he didn't get to it fast enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Richard Redmayne, leader of one of the largest groups, he had himself lost his grip on reality by the second day. And he would periodically cry out that he needed to get to the fucking engine room. It's so wet in this engine room. Jeez. Somebody get me to the engine room. There's a term for that, though, isn't there? Losing your delirium. mind. It's delirium. Yeah, yeah, delirium. It's, yeah, it's full on delirium. Like the the vivid nature of their hallucinations cannot be understated. It's crazy mm. how vivid. We'll get to the hallucinations later. But it was like full on vivid mirage, like not seeing shit that was not there. I've right. said this in more wooey woo circumstances, but the idea of like perception being reality is very interesting and you can really see when you push the mind to its breaking point what it can physically see yeah. as a certainty in front of it is wild mm-hmm. but you know it's kind of sad it's like when you dream that you're like in school and in reality you can dream that you're in space or, oh yeah and you can dream that you're a shark but it would be nice if you didn't just have delirium where it's like oh i think i'm at work that sucks <laughs> it does suck. you could think of i mean you know imagine your imagine the man that you're looking at with big old boobs and like imagine him being a woman and then you kiss and kiss and kiss but it's some, uh, but some, you, uh, but some you, guys some guys did that and we'll talk about that later okay, but good. it was not yeah. it was not good no it wasn't good it was not it was not good it was very it very, wasn't zigzagging zigzagging is consensual it was yeah. bad okay but Richard Redmayne's breakdown was understandable because his men were dying at a rapid pace Half of the 140 men that Redmayne had started with were on rafts, but the rest were on floater nets. By the second day, most of the men on the nets were beginning to sink and die beneath the waves, which the waves were a problem in their own right. Oh my God, it's so scary. The waves were 10 to 12 foot swells, constantly rolling up and down, up and down, hour after hour. This caused intense nausea, which was only made worse by the consumption of fuel oil and seawater, not to mention the smell produced by hundreds of floating, rotting corpses. And as we said, vomiting 
meant death by dehydration. Wow. So they were like literally eating their own vomit. <sighs> yeah. In addition, every group was also forced to periodically hear maddening screams every time a shark decided to take another man. But the group that perhaps had it the hardest was the one led by Corporal Edgar Harrell. His men, numbering 80 to begin with, swam the entire time with no rafts or floater nets to keep them above water. That's so hard. And yeah. you must get so tired, too. You must get so tired, and the idea of just letting go and just yeah. going into the water just becomes, that is the welcome alternative. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. By the second day, half of Edgar's men had already died, but their bodies refused to float away, forcing the survivors to exist within a sea of corpses. And you wonder why this generation went ahead and gave over nature to the oil companies? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Now, the sharks were certainly the most terrifying way that these men died over the course of the four days they spent in the ocean. But sharks were not the biggest worry that the survivors had. That's how you sell the story. The sharks' attacks are like why everybody even knows about the that, USS Indianapolis. Yeah, that gets you in the door. Yeah. yeah. The worst enemy here was dehydration. Yeah, dehydration as an enemy is like if that was like, oh, if that was like the like end Alzheimer's of is the enemy. You yeah, know? like that M Night Shyamalan movie that's just called Old, which <laughs> looks absolutely horrible. But if it turns out it's just like it was dehydration the whole time, this movie sucks. Well, he had yeah. the other movie was just about spores. That's yeah. true. So it and, is possible. Yeah, and the whole thing with science was water, water, water. Wow, it's, it is going to be. It that. is going to be dehydration. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Wow. Many of the men were so dehydrated that their tongues swelled. And in the delirium and madness that followed, some sailors irrationally began drinking seawater, even though they knew full well oh. that drinking seawater is 100% fatal. See, when a person doesn't ingest fluids, the level of salt in their body increases, which makes them even thirstier. Then, when still no fluid comes... Water begins rushing from the body cells to fill the gap. Next, brain cells tear loose, mm. which greatly impairs your judgment. And that is how sailors came to believe that drinking seawater was a good idea. And that's why having a wet-ass pussy means you're healthy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. isn't that nice? Yeah. Like a, like this a wet nose on a dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 oh, that is great. That's yeah. nice. <laughs> Well, drinking the seawater, of course, only introduced more salt, making them more thirsty, which made them drink more salt water. It's a vicious, it's a vicious, ironic cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eventually, blood vessels would tear and fluid would build up in their brains, causing seizures and insanity. They finally vomited uncontrollably, foamed at the mouth, and died of kidney failure, amongst other possible deaths. One indie survivor was so dehydrated that his eyes bulged from his sockets, making it impossible for him to close his eyelids. And his seawater splashed and the sun burned his eyeballs. He could do nothing but scream. Ah! Jesus. <laughs> You're going to want some blue blockers. Ah! <laughs> oh, my God. Get him some sunglasses. Please, uh, Lord. And I, well, I say he could do nothing but scream. That's if his tongue wasn't so swollen so that oh, it came out of his mouth. Oh, and the whole time you're like, Steve, you're being a bummer right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a bummer situation. So I think I'm just calling it like it is. No, you have to say it like Steve. 
<laughs> it's hard out there, man. It is hard. Uh, but there was one guy who talked about the way he saved himself from uh, the glare of the ocean water because he said it was blinding during the day, especially when the sun was high. You couldn't see anything sure. because of the the reflection of the sun from the water. He would take off his socks and he would just lay them over his face. Yeah. Okay. All day long. By the third day, a smaller group led by a man named Haynes succumbed to a group hallucination that was both optimistic Oh. And deadly. Okay. They convinced themselves that the Indy hadn't sunk at all and was in fact anchored intact just below the surface of the water. SpongeBob! Oh! <laughs> What's more is that they also, they also started believing there's an underwater hotel down there. And you can take your pick, uh, ice cream, candy bars, and Coca-Cola. They even got a root beer stand down there. They got free root beer floats, and it's all served by pinup girls. Mm, Dude, you actually. Come on down here. Mm. Hey, you're my friend. I got plenty of food stuff down here. And come here and visit my district and visit Absolutely. my police department. Mm. I mean, that's kind of a fun group thought, uh, you know, as far as the collective unconscious goes. Kind of a good time there. Well, the problem with this hallucination is that men began swimming underwater to actually oh look for these things and the men in the group who had kept their heads they spent hours chasing down divers lest they drown in their fantastical search and if you know anything about wow. the show alone you know that that's burnt calories mm -hmm. and the more calories you burnt when you go down there you're you're expending all of this extra energy right. to get the dudes back in the pocket as they've left to go crazy you're just making yourself more and more tired sure mm -hmm. and this was one of the lucky groups the groups without water, some as small as 17 men, couldn't even talk to each other because their tongues had swollen so much from dehydration. It's just kind of nice that we get to have these quiet moments. <laughs> it is a little bit nice. <laughs> it's just nice, honestly, because we don't need to always feel silence with sound. Uh-huh, yes. They <laughs> even listen. though I'm still doing it, but... Why don't we just be quiet? <laughs> <laughs> what was more is that the life jackets, made to last at most two to three days, oh. were beginning to lose their buoyancy. Now, this was bad news to the Red Main group, where a dozen men were attacked by a frenzy of sharks on the third day. While all the nearby men could do was cover their ears until the screaming stopped. Oh my God. Perhaps the oddest reaction that some of the men had in the face of death was the aggressive sexual advances. Again, in the Redman group, which seemed to be lapping against the jaws of hell, survivor Harpo Salaya said that a sailor lunged at him, quote, demanding sexual congress in lewd terms. Literally take me out to dinner first. Yeah. Like, literally get me food and we'll see. Give me a fucking fish to eat. All I know is, is that of all of the shit you'd think you'd be safe from in the water, right? In this in this situation. Don't forget we are dealing with the Navy here. Share <laughs> yeah. Force. No, we are pro. We have time. We probably have more listeners in the Navy than any other uh, thing. Um, but the idea that you're out there and then you're just floating because, again, you're all nude. And just the idea of getting horny in the scenario. Like, I don't know how you get horny. Why don't you just jerk off or something? Oh, there's no way you could pull a tube in out there. Yeah, I mean, demanding uh. sexual congress in lewd terms, it's just a guy lunging at him saying, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me. Or I fuck you, I fuck you. How Terrifying. Oh Terrifying. Oh my God, okay. Hey, buddy, hey, you want to play uh, up Periscope? Nice. That's yeah. how you softly yeah. ask. Sure. Yeah. 
And at the same time that this guy was aggressively propositioning Harpo, several sailors in the same group started attacking each other with fists and knives, spilling blood and attracting even more sharks. Why did they have knives? Why did, Why would they use knives on these on these rescue boats? Oh, it's because you need them. It seems very dangerous. Use utility well, knives. I mean, these are b- floating men. Like that, some of the men were floating. Some of the men were on nets. Some of the men were in inflatable boats. There okay. was a lot of different shit going on. And also, nobody's thinking straight. No, right. right. Yeah. Luckily for Harpo, he managed to escape the group. But the book we use for this series does allude to several survivors demanding sexual favors from other men throughout their four days on the water. I, I can only you... describe it as like day three of Bonnaroo. <laughs> <laughs> I guess at that point, you do, you wonder if you're going to die out there and you kind of just want one more sexual How experience. How could you even get Which is, hard? A clo- I, I, I think it's just a closeness. And I'll, I, I think that would probably be what you're craving, like a closeness to another human being. They really the, want cuddles, I would the imagine. feel you of intimacy. Cuddle. Yeah, the feel of intimacy. But you don't yeah. got to do it at knife point. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's the that's where it's bad. Well, that's, that's where it's, where it's very bad. bad. Where yeah. it should be a band of brothers all sucking each other. Yes, yeah. so that would be very nice. Sure, yeah. honestly, it would be nice. But also, this is the the point where you they couldn't even untie their fucking when once the life preservers started getting too sogged up. Yeah, their skin was starting to fall apart. They were starting oh. to melt within the water and shit. So they would try to untie the knots of their life preservers, and their skin would just kind of <laughs> slough off. So they couldn't even handle the cord. Oh my yeah. god! Now you're getting me horny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, everyone loves sloughing. Now, when it came to the size of the sharks attacking the men, the smaller ones were the most aggressive. Those were three to four feet long, and they snatched any man who floated away from the group, killing him bite by bite. This is like being single at the club. Oh, man. The larger ones, however, were terrifying in their own way. Measuring up to 20 feet long, those would swim right up to a group, inspect a victim, then instantly devour him oh, before the man even had a chance to scream. Not it, not it, not it. Oh, I don't like this guy, I don't like this guy. He don't shark, smell good. I oh. taste horrible, shark. Well, because we're also the not we're not uh, the natural food of sharks. Normally no. they would yeah, they, uh, don't they like would not this. eat it. Yeah, yeah, we don't taste good to any sort of apex predator. That's why like, usually when you die of a shark attack, they take a one bite and they're like, nah, fuck that. Yeah, blah. But yeah. the damage is done. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you're just so you're just free ass food. Yeah. <sighs> so by the afternoon of August 1st. The men had been in the water for 64 hours, and they were now 60 miles from the sinking site. And the furthest distance between the groups on each end of the oil slick was 30 miles. By this point, the Red Main group had shrunk from 200 survivors to 40. Hmm. In that group, fatal fights regularly erupted, and rumors were abound of men holding down others to rape them in the life rafts. Oh, God. Like I said, this is the one, like, Redmayne's group opened a gate to hell. Okay. Like, there was something horrific there that took a hold of these men that did not take other groups this in this also, manner. Okay. This is also why the story, the survivor Except story Bug Gibson's was, group. Bug Gibson had some pretty fucking awful shit, too. But that's why this story was uh, kind of hidden for years. The, this was a, there was a lot of secret shame that went on with the survivors of what happened in, in, during the sinking because they were shattered by what they saw of human nature in the water. Like, it yeah. really fucked with everybody. Nobody wanted to talk about this shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, those still in the water were beginning to sink from a lack of buoyancy. And some had exposed bone where small fish had constantly nipped at their fingers and toes over the previous three days. 
as far as those fish went, and the sharks too, for that matter. They actually preferred to feast on corpses. Buck Gibson said he would see small, colorful fish swarm a corpse before a shark swooped in to tear the dead body in half. It's Nemo! Oh, I love that part of Finding Nemo. (laughs) Afterward, the smaller fish would coalesce around the leftover pieces to nibble the flesh from the dismembered bodies. And that, my friends, is when the cannibalism started. He did it again! He did it it again! He did it! That's cool! Wow! That's a titular line! Yeah. (laughs) Almost. It's bad. One man in Buck Gibson's group lost his mind to such an extent that he slit the throat of another survivor just to drink his blood. Oh, my. And another cut someone else's wrists for the same purpose. Open sea vampire. Yeah, but yeah. It's, there's so much sun, they would be damaged greatly. It's the new ones where they just sparkle. Oh, I don't <laughs> like that. Vampires have to have some flaws. Otherwise, they're just having sex with all of our wives, and they're looking good. They can't go out in the sun. That's the only... They have to have some kind of problem. One of the oh, best reimagining of a vampire story is a new movie I just called... A new movie I just saw called "My Your Heart Beats Because I Tell It To. It's very mm, good. Okay. That's very good. That's, that's a good title. After only three days at sea, Gibson said that between heaving swells that brought the horror in and out of his sight, he saw a man in another raft eat one of his fellow servicemen. Oh my gosh. Three days! Three days. He waited. It's just, it doesn't seem like it was that long. A month without eating. It's very scary. Like, this is, I feel like there is a. This There's guy was going to eat somebody time, anyway. At some I, point, this guy was going to eat a person. Some people are just looking for a reason to pop off. I do agree. I agree. Yeah. But there's also, this is so scary. You're free floating. And I also believe that the delusional uh, the delusional part of this really fuels it, right? It's the dehydration. Yeah. It's the constant movement. There's no oh. rest. So you're exhausted. There's barely yeah. any sleep. Everybody's falling apart at the seams, but it, I mean, you know, you'd like to think we wouldn't immediately eat each other, but just that scene of like floating and then each time the other wave crests, you see the guy fucking stab a guy in another life raft and then all people probably staying back, probably people yeah. trying try not to get involved. Well, the nipples can be kind of a pepperoni, I suppose, if you uh, flip it in your head. Yeah. Have a nipple. I might have a nipple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, man. threw me a yeah. nipple. Yeah, Kissel, I fucking guess. Yeah. Well, after the cannibalism began, the men began making packs with each other. They all agreed, at least the ones in the Gibson group, they all agreed that any man who became dangerous to the others due to hallucinations or madness would immediately be killed. Ooh, they're going to vote him off the island. Permanently. Yeah. Yeah. He would be put in a headlock and a knife would be inserted under his armpit into the heart, which was deemed the most humane way of execution that they could manage at least. Wow. Multiple men were killed in this way, but instead of saving more survivors, the executioners themselves became warped and deranged, accelerating the madness within their group. Because they just had to kill their buddy. Like they had to kill the guy that they knew, the guy that they have been serving with for a certain period of time. I know that this was a new crew on the USS Indianapolis, but still, like these are guys you've gotten to know. Like yeah. in the beginning of yeah. the Nick Cage movie. But those guys mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to see die. I would Because it was badly scripted. <laughs> I mean, when I was taking Greyhound buses, I, I mean, I don't know them. I still want to stab them in the heart. Mm-hmm. 
It's not really traumatizing and to me. I honestly think it makes you different than 65% of the people on the Greyhound buses. Yeah. <laughs> now, really, the USS Indianapolis is not a story that any of us should have heard. The odds were greatly in favor of these men sinking to the bottom of the sea, where their deaths would have been nothing more than a large number without a tail. But the survivors of the Indy were extraordinarily impossibly lucky. They are. Just when McVeigh's group were using their flares to light cigarettes scrounged from a case of lucky strikes that had floated by, oh. another group spotted a black speck moving along the horizon. Now, the survivors had seen planes flying overhead relatively often during their time in the water, but all of the planes were too high to see the men floating below. But this pilot, a man named Lieutenant Gwynn, spotted the oil slick from his Navy bomber and decided to investigate. See, Gwynn hadn't heard of any ships being destroyed in the area, but a large oil slick implied that a ship had in fact been destroyed. Well, technically, hmm. that mission, when he saw the oil slick, he had thought maybe this was a ship that had we had already popped. Right. Mm -hmm. So he was going to go finish the job. His, he <laughs> they armed the missiles to the yeah. plane when they came back around. So they saw it circle and then they saw it come back. And all of the survivors like they're coming for us. They're coming for us. But the first thing that the, the impulse of the pilot was like, we're going to finish off these fuckers that are down there and we're mm -hmm. just going to bomb them, whatever's left in the water right. until what he saw. I guess the pilot said he it looked like a bunch of coconuts. Yeah. In the water. Oh. And Black then he dots. saw them. Yeah. And then he saw them. I was like, oh, those coconuts have arms. Mm -hmm. Oh, arms or coconuts with arms. And then he yep. called in and he said, there's ducks in the pond. There's ducks in the <laughs> pond. Oh, yeah. my. That was a code. The, the code was transmitted to all the ships in the area that assistance was needed. And the survivors of the USS Indianapolis were finally saved. 1,100 men went into the water. 316 men come out yeah you did it wow that's <laughs> awesome ducks in the pond not to be mistaken for dogs in a bath that is just fantastic well they also and a lot of guys wow. talked about how that was the scariest part yeah. of all this that's was what getting Quint rescued. Said. yes that was that was when i was most terrified the waiting, the, waiting, the waiting to get on the boat yeah, he that, did it. That is the question. So, so the guy is like, "Yeah, we got a bunch of we got a bunch of turtles in the lake over here, whatever he called them." And then, how long was this rescue mission? A few days. So they had to hang out, but some they, of them they did. Were they, rescued. Some, they took the worst yeah. injured first. Okay. Yeah, but they had to do it in a scary fucking way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now the odds of rescue for the men of the Indy was truly one in a billion. For this to happen, the sea had to be abnormally smooth. The sunlight had to hit the oil in just the right way, and Lieutenant Gwynn's plane had to be at just the right altitude. And for me, this begs the question as to how many times this happened where there were no survivors. Well, that's not just not American well, ships. Yeah, yeah, let's not even think about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been Is it like this. right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, it might be happening right now. Could be. Yeah. Could be. That's just. That's not just American ships. That's ships of any nationality. And that's also not just World War II. That's the history of naval travel. Right. How many it's, times did this happen? It's really scary to think just how difficult it is to find somebody floating on the ocean. That oh, it's really yes, hard. Man. Absolutely. Yeah. And still, even when Lieutenant Gwynn called in the shipwreck, nobody knew that the Indy was even missing. 
By the end of the first day, 52 men were rescued, emaciated, shark-bitten, and covered in oozing sores. They had to put them on a, the, a water plane came, right? They circled, around, they, they circled back around and the water plane came. And it was not supposed to hold 52 people in the no. first go. They had to tie them to the wings. Wow. They literally had to tie them to the outside of the plane. So oh you have just been gosh. you've just been in the water for three this is days. the rescue? Yes, and now you are flying <laughs> in the air. I don't I don't think they took off with them on the wings. I yes, think they, they did. <laughs> they tied them up. Dumbo shit right no, there. They tied, and you know what? So what's funny, Ben, is that the name of the Navy rescue team, Dumbo. No kidding. Cute. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that nice? Yeah. Named after that sad elephant. <laughs> Took her mother. Well, wow. Well, the oil on their bodies was so thick that it had to be heated before it could be removed. And those were the men who still had skin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the guys who still had skin, they were always bragging. Yeah. Oh, oh, they God, had skin. Know. You don't have skin. <laughs> Floating in salt water for four days is akin to taking an acid bath. And some men's skin simply slid off their bodies when they were pulled out of, out of the water. Now, what do you Shit. do then? What do you do there? You get, get a, a Band-Aid, man. You get a, <laughs> you get a graft, I think, or you might just die. I think a they lot just of put guys, you see, see shea butter. Yeah, uh. a, lot of, a lot of guys, after they were rescued, like they survived their time in the water, and they just died on the ship. Yeah, right. It was, yeah, just the yeah. worst, the worst. I guess. And what made matters worse was a particular asshole by the name of Wren who grilled some of the survivors like enemy agents when they were brought onto his ship. Even after a survivor had his flesh and muscle pulled from his bones when he was brought out of the water, Wren still screamed questions in his face, asking him what his ship was and what city the Dodgers played in. What the fuck do I give a shit? <laughs> you want me to tell you what the do in that in that uh, era probably Brooklyn Brooklyn Dodgers Brooklyn yeah the Brooklyn Dodgers. But for wow. the most part, the search and rescue crews were gracious, and the men were gracious in their rescue. The sailors of the USS Doyle gave up their bunks for the survivors, and the survivors, when they were finally given water for the first time, they drank just the minimum amount. Said, "I got mine." and then pass the bottle to the next man. Oh, that's nice. By the final tally, approximately 300 men died in the initial torpedo attack, while 579 died in the water. Yikes. And even the men who were rescued had PTSD so bad that some of them couldn't even take a bath for the remainder of their lives. I'd certainly avoid the beach. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So remember that when you when you run into someone maybe they stink a little bit. But maybe don't judge them. Maybe they were they were a survivor of the, the USS Indianapolis and they were 97 <laughs> years old. Maybe? There are five men left on earth who remember the US that were on the USS Indianapolis and they're all in their 80s. But everyone has their own struggles. Everyone has true. their own USS Indianapolis. That is true. Don't they? But there's, I mean, there's one, there was an interview I saw with one guy, like when someone just like suggested, do you ever go near the water? He looked terrified. He's still to this day. I mean, he was in his eighties and he looked, he goes, oh, me and, me and water don't get along. I don't know. I don't go, I don't go near water. Nope. Uh -uh. Just no, like Jason Voorhees. They were deeply, uh, I mean, traumatizes the, a small word for what they uh, were like afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, 
absolutely life-altering, life-changing. They'll never be the same again. Yeah. And, well, and also, I mean, my pillow came from it. So I'm oh, yeah. isn't that nice? <laughs> I, I love that guy who does all the drugs. I mean, the, the documentary, the PBS documentary is, uh, let's, uh, let's say the PBS documentary is a little... Uh, candy coated well uh, it, it focuses it a lot on like we have a new submarine we're gonna find the uss indianapolis yeah. we're gonna and go find it which it. is like probably the last thing that they want to see i never yeah. want to see that <laughs> damn boat again no they did they brought in guys that were on the uss indianapolis the co-founder of microsoft like did a james cameron went and found it himself yeah. and they brought in these old men to like look at it and some of them were like whoa that's amazing i remember that i remember being on that oh deck God. i remember like being there showing nicole brown simpson's sister a bunch of knives like, look at it remember these knives that killed your sister it's like yeah why do i i don't want to i know i was there i know what it I looks mean, like i was in it there were well there were degrees i think you know with some of these uh. men i think if you were on captain mcveigh's uh ship if you were in his little flotilla then it wasn't as bad because you yeah. had rations the whole time you were on a raft you were with and, a stable leader like he yeah. was kind of like keeping shit together they, i feel like yeah. the captain's aura also like held people together but then if you're yeah. on one of the other groups yeah, the, if you're in the, the red cannibal group, cruise line yeah, if you're Cannibal in the Redman group or, or or Bucks group, like you're coming away with it with much different stories yeah. uh, than you know a guy in, in Captain McVeigh's group. Okay, and of course, for a disaster of this magnitude, someone had to answer for it. So you remember, the USS Indianapolis had just dropped off the enriched uranium used in the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, meaning that all of this happened in the last weeks of World War II. On the same day that the Japanese surrendered, the sinking of the Indianapolis was also announced to the public. And it kind of soured the victory because the men and the boys in the Indy, they died for no reason at all. But since somebody had to pay, the blame was placed completely and totally on the shoulders of Captain Charles B. McVeigh III. In November of 1945, just months after he survived the sinking of his ship, Captain McVeigh was court-martialed wow. for failing to order his men to abandon ship in time, which was not a fair charge, and for failing to zigzag. Also not a fair charge. This man was scapegoated harder than... I, I would say he's one of the top scapegoats of the 20th wow, century as far as people really? that were like unfairly blamed for they something. They laid the whole thing on him because they just wanted to say that it's kind of like it was a mixture of policy and bad luck. That it seems like the missiles that came from the the. I mean, that's just that, war, that, man. They were they're out there to kill yeah, people. But that's, so to, it's that's what to blame. That's who you blame. Yeah, yeah. war. What is it good for? <laughs> what's so what's so uh, civil about war anyway? <laughs> well, dude, I mean, speaking of the person who fucking launched the torpedo during McVeigh's court martial hearing, they brought Commander Hashimoto to testify. Uh, yeah. The man oh who my sunk God. the USS Indianapolis, he showed up in court. Sorry, everybody. It's just <laughs> wow. I, it's just here, man. I was under the influence of a flag. Of yeah. course. So what happened to McVeigh? Well, Hashimoto said that even if McVeigh was zigzagging, it wouldn't have made a difference because Hashimoto had fired enough torpedoes to guarantee a hit. He's like, it wouldn't have mattered. And even so, McVeigh was court-martialed and placed on a dead-end career track as a rear admiral. And rear McVeigh admirals was, actually do a lot of the zigzagging. Oh, okay. yeah. Well, McVeigh was, I mean, McVeigh was by all <laughs> accounts a fantastic 
fantastic captain. I mean, and he was third generation too, or no, he was second generation. Like his father w- had been a naval captain. His son was in the Navy. Uh, every man to the one on the USS Indianapolis had nothing but the best things to say about um, McVeigh. He was supposed to be an admiral. But because the court-martial had been highly publicized and because the media had pressed the Navy's narrative that the disaster was all McVeigh's fault, the the families of the men who died transferred their grief and hatred directly to McVeigh himself. What a nightmare for that poor guy. See, McVeigh had erroneously thought that writing 879 letters of condolence to the families of the men he lost, he thought that'd be a comfort to the families. Right. Instead... All McVeigh did was give all of these people his home mailing address. He doxed himself. Oh, man. For Ah. decades, decades afterwards, McVeigh received a steady stream of hateful letters from the families of those killed on the USS Indianapolis. All of them blaming him for the tragedy. And the letters only increased around the anniversary of the sinking and especially at Christmas. Oh, yeah. Because he'd get letter after letter of this, you're the reason why, you know, my, my husband would be, I, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I'd be having a Merry Christmas, except your decisions led to the death of my husband. And that's why my children don't have a father. This would be my, the 25th birthday of my son, except he's dead because of you. Oh, and you that's just constant. Him, you can just see him flipping through the mail and be like, hate mail, hate mail, hate mail, hate mail. Oh, a bill? Hate mail, hate mail, hate mm-hmm. mail. Oh, my God. This is Publishers back- Clearinghouse. Yeah, you're talking about this a memory from when mail was a thing and people cared about mail. Yeah. yeah. Amidst a never-ending flood of hate mail from sisters, brothers, wives, and parents, not to mention the insane amount of PTSD he suffered from, McVeigh put a gun to his head oh. and pulled the trigger on November 6th, 1968. Damn. That ain't right. But in 1996... An eighth grade student named Hunter Scott began researching the story of the USS Indianapolis for a school project after he saw Captain Quint's speech in Jaws. That's how movies change lives. (laughs) I don't care what Spielberg has done. I don't care about his crimes and the secrets he knows. Well, he has no crimes. You don't know. You just don't know. (laughs) You just don't know. Yeah, I, I think you have a pretty good idea. I don't think Spielberg, we, don't, we shouldn't just be saying What did Spielberg crimes. know? Okay, what were, did they tell him before Close Encounters of the Third Kind? What did he <laughs> no, know? No, you're talking about alien stuff that is, again, not criminal. It used to be more serious. <laughs> it's very serious right now. And after this eighth grade student discovered the terrible disservice done to Charles McVeigh, he began a campaign to clear the captain's name. Hunter was soon joined by the commanding officer of the second USS Indianapolis, which is a fast attack nuclear submarine. Cool. That's not going to do bad things. (laughs) Not at all. And working together, they took the fight all the way to Congress. And after a lengthy legal battle with the Navy, a resolution was passed in October of the year 2000, exonerating Captain Charles B. McVeigh, 55 years after the tragic sinking of the USS Indianapolis. But while the sinking of the USS Indianapolis was really no one's fault, at least when it came to the Navy brass, a particularly American desire for revenge and punishment ensured that the USS Indianapolis still ruined the life and the career of one more man who had already suffered more than we can ever imagine. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess it's nice for the family, for the lineage. 
for yeah, them to have this. It's always it's like, nice uh, to be exonerated after you're dead because then you can really benefit from <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. That's but, the thing. You can really it really helps everything yeah, it, when you're dead. Reminds oh, you a little yeah, bit yeah, of, yeah. of what's what's going on right now with the NCAA. Reggie Bush, he's getting his Heisman Trophy back. Oh, because uh, now you can actually make a little bit of money and you can sign autographs and That's stuff. That's very so. nice, huh. actually. They used to yeah. they used to it's, prosecute. Or, I mean, he uh, didn't kill eight hundred men. Like no, this he had sex with Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I, oh wow that is who well and, uh, i think he did yeah i'm pretty sure yeah. anyway wow, wow. What, what an incredible story the uss indianapolis it is different than the nicholas cage movie yeah. oh it is very different it is very different movie did not show me those things no it's cr- i mean that's the crazy thing with the whole thing is that they there really was this public <sighs> desire for punishment like someone had to be punished for this and it was just mcveigh who uh, happened to be the one who bore the brunt of everyone's anger and grief it's just what we it do. Was at the end of the war. It's what we do. It's like you know, after nine eleven, someone was going to get it. Yeah, mm. just we didn't know be, uh, who just hit. We just had to choose. spin the wheel, and then yeah. they did. And it was hundreds they, of thousands of Iraqis. Yeah, there's did, always uh, somebody's got to get it. When America gets pissed, somebody's going to get it. Yeah, and it's usually not the actual perpetrators. No, um, usually not. Looking at you, Saudi Arabia. All right. <laughs> um, We're actually announcing our new tour dates over in Saudi Arabia. I just want to say thank you guys so much to our listeners over there. Um, we actually do have some tour dates we want to pump. We, next yeah. week, where y'all come out, Des Moines. Yes. We still got some tickets available in Des Moines. We've got tickets available in Omaha. Omaha. We've got tickets, tickets available in Detroit. I will say we're very, very lucky in the fact that our shows are selling out. And uh, it means yeah. a lot. We can't wait to come and see you. Last podcast in left.com. Get those goddamn tickets. Yeah, get the tickets. We can't wait to see you. Last podcast merch. And uh, we can't wait to go. Did we go to Omaha together? Or because when I traveled across country, I stopped in Omaha. We've I been to Omaha. That we went, yeah, we went to we Omaha. We had okay. a, that was actually the, the last date of the, the first big tour we did that year that we did uh, like something like 60. So we did something like 60 shows. In a year, the last date was Omaha. Ooh, I, I love Omaha. I'm excited to go. Yeah. And of course, Des Moines, we always have a blast. I love well. Des Moines. That strip down there is really fun. I'm not having fongs again before we perform. I'm not doing no, that. No, but I will have it afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Wonderful yes. food. Wonderful food. All right. Um, well, thank you all so much for supporting all the shows here on the Last Podcast Network. All that um, shit. Last Podcast merch. We got yeah, the coffee. Go last Podcast merch. We got some Spring Hill Jack coffee. We got the weed line. Absolutely. Uh, Santa Ana, we're going to be in there tomorrow. So, uh, tomorrow, yes. we're going to be there from noon to four. We're going to come down there and see you guys. Can't wait. Uh, at Whedon. Excited to, do, to show you some of our vapes. Yeah, going to show them there. Hope you guys enjoy the vapes. And is there anything else? And a little bit of a notice. You're going to see a tiny change. This week, we're going to have some interviews come out because our staff is taking a week off. We're going to take a bit of a week off for yes, everybody. So absolutely. we're going to be coming back around, but we're here. We're going to have shows pumping out. Well, mini, Nothing else will change. A mini summer break break but of course we still provide content and i think you guys will enjoy all of because we, we put the lash to ourselves yeah we we pull, pull, what is it called philagelizing flagellating flagellating yeah we flagellate ourselves we flagellate ourselves flagellating um all right everyone well thank you so much for supporting the network and the shows and uh, never forget hail yourselves hail satan hail again augustinations Show me the way to go home. <laughs> I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had me a drink about an hour ago. And I went straight to my head. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. <laughs> <laughs>